page three. To the blessed one, the Lord who fully attained perfect enlightenment, to the teaching which he expounded so well, and to the blessed one's disciples who have practiced well, to these, the Buddha, the Tamma, and the Sangha, we render with offerings our rightful homage. It is well for us that the Blessed One, having attained liberation, still had compassion for later generations. May these simple offerings be accepted, for our long-lasting benefit and for the happiness it gives us. The Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the blessed one. The teaching so completely explained by him I bow to the Tamma. The Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha. Now let us pay preliminary homage to the Buddha. Noble and perfectly enlightened one, homage to the blessed, noble and perfectly enlightened one, homage to the blessed, noble and perfectly enlightened one. Now let us chant the recollection of the Buddha. Of the Blessed One's reputation has spread as follows. He, the Blessed One, is indeed the Pure One, the perfectly enlightened One. He is impeccable in conduct and understanding, the accomplished One, the knower of the worlds. He trains perfectly those who wish to be trained. He is teacher of gods and humans. He is awake and holy. Now let us chant the supreme praise of the Buddha. The truly worthy one, endowed with such excellent qualities, whose being is composed of purity, transcendental wisdom and compassion, who has enlightened the wise like the sun, awakening the lotus. I bow my head to that peaceful chief of conquerors, the Buddha who is the safe, secure refuge of all beings, as the first object of recollection. I venerate him with bowed head. I am indeed the Buddha's servant. The Buddha is my Lord and guide. The Buddha is sorrow's destroyer. 
who bestows blessings on me. To the Buddha I dedicate this body and life, and in devotion I will walk the Buddha's path of awakening. For me there is no other refuge. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. By the utterance of this truth, may I grow in the Master's way. By my devotion to the Buddha and the blessing of this practice, by its power, may all obstacles be overcome. My body, speech, or mind, for whatever wrong action I have committed towards the Buddha, may my acknowledgement of fault be accepted, and in future there may be restraint regarding the Buddha. Now let us chant the recollection of the Dhamma. Is well expounded by the Blessed One, apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading onwards to be experienced individually by the wise. Now let us chant the supreme praise of the Dhamma. Because it is well expounded and it can be divided into path and fruit, learning and liberation, the Dhamma holds those who uphold it from falling into delusion. I revere the excellent teaching, that which removes darkness, the Dhamma, which is the supreme, secure refuge of all beings, as the second object of recollection, I venerate it with bowed head. I am indeed the Dhamma's servant. The Dhamma is my Lord and guide. The Dhamma is sorrow's destroyer, and it bestows blessings on me. To the Dhamma I dedicate this body and life, and in devotion I will walk this excellent way of truth. For me there is no other refuge. The Dhamma is my excellent refuge. By the utterance of this truth, may I grow in the Master's way. By my devotion to the Dhamma, and the blessing of this practice, by its power, may all obstacles be overcome. By body, speech, or mind, for whatever action I have committed towards the Dhamma, may my acknowledgement of all be accepted, that in future there may be restraint regarding the Dhamma. Now let us chant the recollection of the Sangha. Who have practiced well, who have practiced directly, who have practiced insightfully, those who practice with integrity, that is the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings, these are the blessed one's disciples, such ones are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, Worthy of offerings, 
worthy of respect. They give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world. Now let us chant the supreme praise of the Sangha. That Sangha which has practiced well, the field of the Sangha formed of eight kinds of noble beings, guided in body and mind by excellent morality and virtue. I revere that assembly of noble beings perfected in purity. The Sangha, which is the supreme, secure refuge of all beings, as the third object of recollection, I venerate it with bowed head. I am indeed the Sangha's servant. The Sangha is my Lord and guide. The Sangha is sorrow's destroyer, and it bestows blessings on me. To the Sangha I dedicate this body and life, and in devotion I will walk the well-practiced way of the Sangha. For me there is no other refuge. The Sangha is my excellent refuge. By the utterance of this truth, may I grow in the Master's way. By my devotion to the Sangha, and the blessing of this practice by its power may all obstacles be overcome by body speech or mind for whatever action i have committed towards the sangha may my acknowledgement of fault be accepted that in future there may be restraint regarding the sangha Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Buddham damang sangang namasami. So the uh, Ajahns and Venerable and I were talking about the um, interview process and what we're seeing in the, in the groups and uh, very impressed by the, the quality and the, the depth of practice that's going on here. Uh, it's, it's really uh, very moving from where we sit <laughs> to see the kind of uh, commitment and, and uh, as I said, I've been very impressed by the depth of practice going on. And, and still, sometimes the, the heart, as we listen to the stories and, and uh, realize what people are going through, you know, there can be a sense of, of kind of whimpering, you know, a little bit, because it is such a struggle. It can be so difficult, and, and a, a lot of people are in pain, physical and mental, and uh, doing the best that we can to navigate around it, to maneuver our way, our way through it, and try to understand 
what the heck's going on here, <laughs> how it's all happening, and how we get caught up, and, and how we get free. And there's been a, a number of things in my own practice that uh, I have found particularly helpful um, in, in just uh, supporting me and trying to see and make sense of it all. And one of those I talked about the other night, this quality of faith uh, in practice, and, and really even in a broader sense, this, this uh, sense of being able to, to recognize and see one's uh, natural goodness. And that's the thing I think that was moving me so much today. I was just watching and very aware of, of a, a, a very deep aspiration on the part of the people we're practicing with. You know, it's like, it's like at, at some level that, that goes, it's quite profound. You know, we all are just uh, reaching into the depths of our being and doing what we can to, to not only be free of suffering for ourselves, but, you know, there was a sense of, of just not wanting to be an annoyance to other people either, you know, trying to clean it up so that uh, we don't suffer, but that's so that we aren't, we can walk about the world in a harmless way. And, and not be a cause of difficulty for other people as well. And so these, if we don't recognize these qualities that are moving in us, the things that are driving our action, you know, we really miss um, a great support in practice. So as I said the other night, this is what I, I, one of the things that I really like to emphasize. See the faith, see the goodness, see the aspiration, uh, see how much you want to be harmless in this world, and, and trust that. And don't feel like it's anything that you can't um, own or see or, or feel at a very deep level. So that's one thing that um, I, I found to be very supportive. But the other, the other aspect of this, and looking back over the years of my own practice, I'd have to say that things really began to take off for me when um, I came across some of the teachings on the, the five aggregates the things that we chant about in the morning, you know, form, feeling, perception, comma, formation, sense consciousness, and, and try to, to see and understand how all of this is operating. And particularly um, the, the bit um, that we call intention, which is one of the, the comma formations. So several of you had asked questions in the uh, uh, period the other night about that. We didn't get to them, but I made note that there were a number of questions about intention and how to work with it and, and how it operates. And understanding this uh, has been, uh, is, I wouldn't say it's complete yet, but the process of trying to understand it and see it operate in, in one's experience is, is really one of the most powerful tools that we have. Uh, one of the powerful forces of wisdom and understanding that helps us to, to relinquish the, the grip that we have on, on um, various uh, ways that we are, you know. Um, and, and the Buddha offers us a tremendous amount of help to understand how intention operates. So I just thought I want, I want to just lay out a little bit about how it operates and then walk through some of the aggregates and see how uh, we learn to relate in a new way to all of this. So um, uh, intention is something that uh, is one of those words like uh, Ajahn Puddhadhamma was talking about the other day about concentration, where um, it, it's in our interest to really lose any notions that we have about it or lose our own conceptions about intention and, and try to understand what the Buddha is calling intention. 
and, and, and kind of like clean the slate. Just like he was saying, we have to do that with concentration because there's so many mental ideas about what concentration is that when you say concentrate, you know, one of the fellows in the group today was reporting how he just had this big headache, you know, it's just like this heavy pounding sense in the middle of his head because he's trying so hard to focus and see clearly. And, and that's one of the, the uh, outcomes, you know, that's one of the ways that uh, we, we're kind of bringing our old ideas about it to practice and then uh, holding them in the head or holding them in our mind and then trying to become. So you get this sense of trying to become focused and trying to become concentrated in the only way that we know how. And everything gets all tight and, and, and scrunched up. And, you know, and if, if concentration is anything, it's relaxation and ease. You know? So it's like a, you can see how our ideas about it um, uh, don't serve us. So uh, the Buddha puts it this way. Um, it, it, it he's, uh, says that it's a it's a primary mover in a way. It's a very subtle urge that um, occurs at um, at the beginning of actions through body, speech, and mind. It's like a, a, a very um, primary uh, movement in, in the uh, in the chitta to to move, to act, to um, um, through, uh, to um, uh, either move or think. I mean, it actually even includes thinking, uh, and uh, to uh, to speak. So um, one needs to become uh, attuned to this. But it's uh, the the difficulty with it is is that it's enormously uh, subtle, and very and often most of the time it's actually quite unconscious. So one of the things we we see, like when we're on um, a long intensive retreat is that the teachers will guide us to try to become uh, aware of intention. So that maybe um, over the, the weeks, you, you know, they start the guidance with, well, just be aware of the breathing, be aware of the body. And then little by little, you say, we'll become aware of feelings, become aware of mental states. And then gradually, as the retreat progresses, then um, we're encouraged to uh, try to become aware of intention. And when we do that, um, and you can. You can actually, it takes a tremendous amount of samadhi to be able to see it because it's so subtle <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, mostly unconscious in our regular daily uh, active lives, you know. But um, you can uh, and do see it in intensive uh, retreat practice. And um, the way that people describe it, who experience it, it's really interesting that they put it. It's, it's kind of they, they feel it like a kind of like a burp bubbling up. You know, it's like a, you're you're about to go this way, about to go that way, uh, about to stand up from your sitting, about to go and do your walking meditation, um, and uh, you know they they, they 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 commonly describe it as kind of like an about to, just like that. You know, it's like a, it's a, it's that. Uh, Tension is like a, a contracting before something happens. So again, it's very subtle and often um, quite difficult to see, but it does um, direct action, and um, it's the the main mechanism that is not only directing action, but literally it gets so refined that it's the thing that is determining where our attention lands. So, like you know, why when you're going about throughout the course of the day. Why are you attending to this thing and not that thing? You know, why are you attending to 
uh, the bird and not your walking meditation. Why are you attending to your walking and not the bird? You know, uh, and this is um, this is the actual movement of intention. It's the thing that's determining what happens um, in in those moments. And he, uh, we say that it's present in every single moment. It's the driving force behind all of it. It's kind of like the rudder in, in a ship. It's directing everything that we do. Um, even though most of it is unconscious, it kind of gets, starts to get your attention when you realize this. It's a, what's directing what we're doing is, is so subtle and, uh, that as to be almost unconscious most of the time. And nothing happens without it. N- nothing uh, in, uh, from the day that we're born until the day we die is happening without this driving uh, impulse. And the Buddha tells us that there's six kinds. Um, three have to do with um, unwholesome or unskillful intentions. And these are the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. So um, uh, lots, you know, you, you've seen lots of times that the, 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 uh, the mind is going towards things that it wants, uh, away from things that it doesn't want, or just kind of checking out because not a whole lot is happening. And then the other three are um, the skillful intentions. Um, and uh, surprisingly, they're called non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. <laughs> it's like the flip, the flip side of the coin. <laughs> so um, what we know about it and what you can see very directly is that um, each of these is uh, linked with uh, a certain experience in the present. So that uh, when we're caught up in uh, greedy or, or hateful or deluded states, that these states are um, understood and experienced as suffering states. You know, the, the mind is caught in uh, what Buddha called the, the unwholesome roots of suffering. And so our experience is suffering, and they take us in the directions of even more suffering. So it's, and uh, the opposite obviously is true with the, uh, the skillful. And some people even relate these to um, um, sort of living hell and heaven realms, you know, that if you're caught up in, in uh, greed, hatred, and delusion all the time, then we're actually dwelling in uh, hell realms. You know, and when we are able to connect with the more refined and skillful states, then um, our experience is obviously a lot more pleasant and happy. So we say that, well, that, that's why it very much has to do with the state that you're in at any given moment, whether um, uh, you're, you're enjoying it or whether things are going pretty badly, you know, whether it's uncomfortable or unpleasant. But it also has to do a lot to do with um, our future, because um, the uh, the way that uh, intention operates is that it has a certain momentum to it, and and so and this is this is all to be seen. This is not to be believed, but this is what we're actually observing um, through the the months and years of practice, where you begin to see for yourself that um, when you behave badly in this moment, it tends to uh, condition us or have a certain momentum behind it where the likelihood is great that you'll continue to behave badly. 
you know, so that they, they, uh, you, you, what we're actually doing is establishing uh, conditions, establishing the conditions for our future experiences. You know, so we, I mean, that, that, just that right there gets our attention. You know, where you, uh, it, it behooves us to try to get on a track that leads in the direction of, of skillfulness. You know, because um, these things have a momentum and it's very difficult to stop. You might have seen this <laughs> this week. <laughs> the, the karmic patterns and habits of mind get deeply, deeply entrenched. And, you know, even, even um, though everything in us may want to go in a different direction sometimes, you can't do it. You know, it's, a, it's amazingly powerful. I mean, one of the things that I've really come to respect through practice is that the sheer force of karma <coughs> and habits and patterns of mind. You know, so uh, it's not to say that you can never change course. You know, you can never throw the switch. But um, to do that, you may have noticed, takes a, a tremendous amount of, of relaxation and mindfulness to any given moment because you've got to be able to, in a way, uh, go, go against or counter to uh, the force of habit to go in another direction. So you can get a wedge in there and you can manage that, but that's if there's a lot of um, samadhi and if there's a lot of mindfulness and the recollection of past harm from having done that action in the past. But that's a really big if, you know, because the, the mindfulness and the, the concentration can be hard won, can't they? They're difficult to, uh, can be difficult to establish and difficult to sustain, especially when we're caught in one of these grooves, you know. Have you seen it? <laughs> I suspect you're learning a lot about this all this week. So, and this isn't far, far out, you know, we can see this in, in other ways in our lives, that things have a momentum. Like one of the things um, people talk a lot of, uh, about is just um, <clears throat> trying to get, like say, develop some good habits like eating well or having a good exercise program, you know, and, and you find that <clears throat> you may be able to do that and may be able to keep it going for a little while, but uh, uh, after a while it often loses steam, you know, that the, the momentum, um, uh, because the, the mind gets deflected and wants to go in another direction, the, karmic, the old karmic patterns, the old ways, can reestablish themselves very quickly. One of my friends used to tell me, because I, I always struggled with exercise, because I don't, it's just not one of the things I love to do, you know, and, and so uh, he would tell me, well, it just takes 21 days just, you just have to do something for 21 days and you develop a new habit, you develop a new groove, you know. And I tried it, and it's true. I mean, you, once you, if you just keep at it, keep at it, keep at it, you know, then uh, you can uh, start, uh, start a new direction. But even that, if, if the knowing or the understanding that's driving all of that is very superficial, you find you just kind of drift, you know. <laughs> and and uh, if it's all kind of coming out of just that, like a, a, a demanding uh, you know, sheer uh, compulsion to stay with something, then um, the, the level at which it's operating is just isn't super, it's too superficial. It's not substantial enough to, su- to sustain it. We need a lot more wisdom and a, a lot more understanding to take it to the depths that we need to, to be able to sustain these things. 
So just given all of this, um, this whole experience of, of uh, intention just really tends uh, to get our attention. Uh, you know, we, we could say, well, it, it's easy. All, all you got to do is get yourself in that groove of skillful. You know, <laughs> just get it, get just, just lock onto that skillful groove and stay with it. You know, and just avoid those unskillful grooves and, and keep avoiding them. You know, that's the, and, and clearly that's what uh, right effort is all about, you know. But, you know, it, you may have noticed it just doesn't quite play out that way. You know, we, we, we do that and we want to do that. We want to be able to set and establish ourselves in skillful resolves and skillful determinations. But um, you also have to understand how this whole thing operates and what's the, the, the mechanisms for, for really bringing about the kind of change that we want to bring about. And what's uh, operating in these more superficial levels, if we, if we really, is a, is a lot of self-view. If we really are still locked into self-view and you think that uh, changing your behavior or changing your patterns of speech or changing the things that you think about and being able to try and, and go in a different course, if you still think that that's all under the control of some self, that's, that's making all of that happen, then uh, it doesn't go very well for us, you know. It's, it's very difficult. And what ends up happening, and this to me is, is what we do a lot in practice, and this can go on for many years. The practice itself is being driven by some sense of self that thinks that it's doing it, you know. And, and so what you get when you go down that kind of route is um, it's, it's kind of like a setup. It's a setup for the, the, the things that so many people are reporting, where um, when you fail, then uh, you, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> uh, you didn't do it right. You didn't work hard enough. You didn't force yourself. You, know, you didn't make this square peg go down into this square, round hole. You know? And, and, and you know, the, the, it's just such an awful setup for uh, a lot of mental torment and anguish. Um, in practice, because we, we think that self is, is doing all of this. We think that it's the mechanism for how uh, change is taking place. And there's all manner of uh, self-loathing and self-flagellation that goes on in this whole process. Because uh, I, I should have done it better. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't sustain it. I didn't, all this kind of stuff. Have you seen it? <laughs> it's pretty powerful. And it's pretty forceful and, and very, very painful. You know, why can't I stay with it? Why can't I stay on track? That kind of thing. And we get this very strong feeling that there's something wrong, something terribly wrong with us and terribly wrong with our practice. But, but there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with any of it. It's just that we don't understand. We don't fully understand the, the mechanism um, of intention, how it operates and how it is the mechanism that is bringing about the change. But intention is not self. It's one of the things that we're chanting every morning. <laughs> it's, not, um, it's not driven through a sense of self. It's operating in a completely different way. And it's for us to see that and to, to know it and understand it for ourselves. So here's what the, the Buddha encourages us to see. 
he says, an intention is not under the control of the self, and, and we don't have the control over it that we think that we do. And, and this can be hard to, to get because um, all of us have a sense of, of somebody in here who's doing it, don't you? I mean, just as something as simple as uh, putting on your shoes or brushing your teeth or getting up in the morning or leaving your sitting and going to your walking. You know, there's a, there's this, there's this sense inside that I'm, I'm doing that. I am going to get up now. <laughs> I am going to go to my walking path. I am going to go and have my meal. And uh, it's very strong. You know, and if you look at it, you know, just, just examine that feeling. There's a, there's a very uh, a simplistic, maybe, sense that, that somebody's in here, like sitting at the control panel. You know, and managing it all and directing it. Okay, the right arm is going up, the left arm is going down. Like, like you know, it, it, it sounds crazy and it, it is very simplistic. But let's be honest, most of us have a very real, visceral sense that uh, that's how it's all happening. And the Buddha is telling us in, in no uncertain terms that it's just not that way. <laughs> it's just not that way. And, and, and fortunately, we're the recipients of an unbelievable teaching where he's showing us how it's not that way and directing us to see it for ourselves. It's not good enough to believe what he's saying, but actually to, to do the practice that takes us to the direct realization of this, to see for ourselves. And one of the, one of the best ways that we do that is turning to this teaching of the five aggregates. And, you know, that's why it's no, no accident that uh, this is part of um, what is uh, chanted and recollected and reflected um, uh, virtually every morning at the monasteries. We don't always go through the whole of that uh, morning chanting. But um, it, it, it's, a, it's an amazing way to start the day, <laughs> you know. You just get up and the first thing that you do is uh, chant the, these, uh, this uh, teaching that comes in part from the Anattalakana Sutta and other suttas throughout the, the Pali Canon where the Buddha is um, naming these uh, aspects of experience, the body, feeling, perception, kama formations, consciousness, and uh, in essence, um, uh, telling us to, uh, or directing us to see that all of the suffering that we experience proceeds from, in one form or another, attachment to these five aggregates. And um, that the, the, the deliberation from that is a, a process of seeing them very directly as impermanent suffering and non-self. So that what you end up with is a, is a, a, real, a very real experience, a uh, direct uh, experience uh, of the fact that um, while these are, this is our experience, there is physical experience, there are feelings, there are perceptions, there are mental events. This is our experience, but um, it's not who we are. <laughs> And uh, I just love that about the Buddha and his teachings, you know, because really, as I said earlier, I, I, I 
studied a lot of different religions. And basically all the religions that I've looked into say very clearly that we are not this body and mind. You know, they all say it. <laughs> but um, what I found so rich about the Buddhist teachings is that um, he, he's actually showing us how, how to see it, that it's true and how to see it. One of, one of my favorite sutras in this regard is um, the, the Greater Discourse on the, the Full Moon Night, where um, uh, the Buddha walks through the aggregates and explains them, and then uh, says uh, this tagline that you know, one keeps coming back to, like uh, Ajahn Pranadama was saying, the not me, not mine tagline that did it for him. But the Buddha would say, do not regard these five aggregates as self. Do not regard them as self. <laughs> I kind of hold that sometimes as a, as a mantra when I can feel myself clinging and caught up in attachment in one way or another to one of these five aggregates. So uh, some say it's easier to see these um, at the coarser levels and it gets harder and harder as you move down the line of the five to the more refined levels. And, um, you know, I have generally found that to be true in, in my experience. Uh, but I don't want to put it out there as a necessary, uh, necessarily true for you. And you may find uh, you have a propensity for uh, seeing something in a more refined level than, 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 say, starting with the body. But generally speaking, I have found it to be true. that, And, and um, I offer this as a guidance because um, there's a way that there's a reasoning um, can come into play then and really be helpful to, to sort of uh, reasonably and rationally see how um, it sort of ease into the, the realization uh, of intention as not-self. Because my, my thing, I like to call intention as like the last stronghold of self-view. You know, it's like the last thing to let go, you know, where you know, you can sort of see that the body and feeling and perceptions are not self, but, you know, when it comes to this bit that is moving things, that is making the decisions, that is deciding where we go and what we do and, how, and what we say and what we even think, you know, there's it, it a lot of identity going on here, a very strong um, sense that um, this is me and this is under my control and subject to, to my wishes. So just to, to walk through um, the aggregates and, and see, give you some examples of how, uh, hopefully, that you can relate to and that you can uh, see for yourself, uh, uh, if you're not already, how, how um, uh, this is gradually revealed. So just looking at the body first. So we, we practice for a while and um, one begins to, to get a, some small sense of uh, detachment from the, from the body as self. You know, um, little by little, you begin to see that the, the, oper- the, the, the body is kind of operating according to its own laws. You know, we may think that it's under our control or that we're directing the course of actions, but it's not that hard to see that that's not true, <laughs> you know. You only have to watch, like, uh, uh, one of the first ways that I, I, I was getting tuned to this myself, and I was talking about it earlier in the week, is just watching the body as it changes postures, like, say, on a meditation retreat or any time throughout our lives and throughout the day, and just kind of staying with it 
And that's tricky because um, we tend to zone out uh, on these little transitions where the body is moving from one posture to another. We tend to uh, lose our attention. And because and you can watch, because it's like we're going somewhere. <laughs> you know, and that, that impulse to be going somewhere just kind of dominates and um, overrides the capacity to stay with actually where we are. So you can easily miss that movement from one posture to the next. But if you, if you watch it, if you can stay with it, and you know, I, I've, I've taken up a, a, a number of uh, different practices even in my daily life where I do this, where you know, uh, I start like right away in the morning when I get up, like, like when I wake up, to, to really very deliberately say, okay, now stay in the body while you get up, you know. Stay in the body while you walk to the bathroom to brush your teeth, you know. Stay in the body while you go to make your coffee. And just, uh, you know, you sort of settle down in it and, and watch how this is all kind of just moving, you know. It's all kind of um, happening. It doesn't really require that I think in order for those kinds of movements to happen. You know, it, it can feel that way sometimes, but really, if you examine it, the thoughts about those movements are, are always tags. They're always coming in after the movements have already happened. You know, it, it's just, it's, it's moving itself. And so if you, if you watch this long enough, and it's, it's not that uh, subtle intentions to move are not part of it, but I'm trying to get at the fact that that intention itself is not driven by self. So, um, you know, you, you begin to see that um, all of it is it, just happening. It's kind of like we're, we're along for the ride, <laughs> you know? It's really interesting when you start to look at it this way. And, and uh, you collect data. You just kind of notice. Just keep staying with it and notice this moment and this moment and this moment and this moment. And, and eventually, it's like the mind uh, reaches a critical mass of data, you know? And, and basically, the, the data that it's collected don't support the idea that somebody is in here running the show. You, you just have to uh, look and see. It, it's, uh, it's very obvious. So we just uh, stay with it and, and, and uh, collect enough data. <laughs> you know, maybe the, maybe the mind's a little slow to get it, but uh, eventually it does. So that's one of the, one of the best ways to see it. Or just look at uh, one's attitudes about caring for the body. You know, the things that we do to, to ensure that we stay well. You know, and, um, and certainly one wants to do this. I don't want to uh, give the wrong impression here. We want to do everything that we can to be a good steward for the body. You know, it's home. <laughs> it's where we live. And so uh, we take great care with it. Um, but, you know, you can have a, a, a too much attachment to that or uh, get lost in some sense that what you're doing is the reason why it's staying healthy. You know, and, 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 and because in part that's true. But one can, uh, like, have a good exercise program or eat very well, and then um, you still get sick. You know, the, the, the body will get sick. Uh, and, and if you're really attached to being in, in, the master of the universe, you know, and controlling all of this, then 
uh, it can be very irritating. It can create a lot of stress in the system because, you know, what's wrong with me, you know? I ate my sprouts, I did my exercise, and I still got sick. You know, can you feel that? It, it can get very intense, and um, one wants to uh, hold this in a way that, uh, that is, uh, yes, by all means, do these good things for the body, but know that in terms of what happens to the body, there are a lot of other factors that are involved, you know, environmental factors, karma, things that are going on in, in the world around us. And, and the body is still going to get sick. You know, the body is not self. It's not under the control of self in the, in the way that we think it is. And if we, you know, this is a gradual process. And at some level you say, well, I know that, you know. <laughs> I get that, but then look and see what happens when we get sick and how uh, we can get annoyed or think we've done something wrong. You know, it's wild, but uh, that's how it can play out sometimes. Or just look at this whole process of aging. You know, this has been a big topic on the front burner uh, this week. <laughs> Probably going back to what I was saying earlier about the mean age of this group being quite uh, middle-aged, you know. And so uh, for some of you here on this retreat, this isn't particularly on the front burner yet, but you, you'll get your time. <laughs> just give it a few years. It'll be on the front burner just like the rest of us, you know. And so you sit, you sit and you're, you know, every day you begin to, to notice that there's a, another age spot or another wrinkle, or like I was telling the Ajans earlier, you know, it's just been so, so wild to watch. Everything's just going south, you know, <laughs> and east and west, you know, it's all kind of spreading out and go falling down. And, and, and you, you know, there's just nothing you can do about it. You just kind of watch it happen. And, and uh, certainly, again, you can do things to, to care for the body, but, uh, you know, this is, this is a process that is, is not subject to our control. And if you don't get, if we don't get that, then it can be a very distressing time in life. And it's very unfortunate, I think, because in, in some ways, um, uh, the aging process is very supportive to the practice, very supportive to insight. Because, you know, basically you're just too old and tired to fight anymore, you know. <laughs> and so this whole uh, uh, capacity for just letting things be the way they are gets stronger and stronger. And just, I think there's a lot of wisdom that comes with years just from having seen things so many times. You know, it's a very natural process. But it can escape us if we're very attached to the body as being who we are. And, and all that, the, the uh, images and cues that we get in our culture for, you know, the, the, the right way to have a body is to have a young one, you know, that's, that's supple and can move about and isn't in a lot of pain, you know. Well, that's just not always the case, is it? We have to face this, we have to deal with this. Or, you know, I mean, there's certainly ways to get, a, get around it if you want to, but they can be very diluted. <laughs> you know, a number, a number of years ago, one of my, one of my good friends uh, called me up and she was all excited. <laughs> and she, was, uh, she said she was doing a lot of research on the internet and she found these um, plastic surgery clinics in Malaysia or Indonesia or somewhere 
that were really high-end and high-tech. And there was, she said, they have some of the best um, plastic surgeons on the planet living in this part of the country. And, uh, and so they have these packages whereby you can come and, and kind of combine a holiday with getting some plastic surgery, you know. <laughs> so you, you basically arrive at these really posh hotels and you're, you have a few days on the beach and take a little holiday and then you go and get your procedure. And, and then the, you stay in your room and these nurses attend to your every need and you take the few weeks that you need to recover and you continue to have a little bit of a holiday and then they fly you back home. And she was all excited because she said, you know, it's, you can do all of this and you do it cheaper than, than flying out to Las Vegas or Hot Springs or something like that. You can do it, you can do it in a, uh, with much better surgeons and uh, a lot cheaper. And, and so she was uh, noticeably uh, disappointed when I didn't jump at the idea, you know. <laughs> and she was like, well, what's the matter with you? Don't you want your chin back, you know? <laughs> and I, <laughs> it just really cracked me up, that, just that expression, that don't you want your chin back, you know? And so, you know, I thought about it. I actually used to say, well, well maybe I do. I don't know, you know. I mean, uh, I miss my chin as much as any middle-aged person, you know. <laughs> you sort of catch yourself in a profile sometimes, don't you? It's like, you know, it just goes from here right down to the chest, so the sternum, you know. It's like, oh, God. But, you know, then, you know, we're... we're we're kind of looking at this a little differently, aren't we? You know, and so you you kind of, uh, yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm sure I, I've thought about it. I'm sure a lot of other people have. You know, you go, oh. well. I mean, could you do it and not be deluded? I don't know. You know, maybe you can. <laughs> could you do it and not not believe that you're really uh, preserving something or that you're really not getting older? You know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the jury's still out on that one, quite frankly. <laughs> I mean, I'm not putting it down. It's, it's okay to do, you know. But, you know, you, as practitioners, you, you question whether this is the, the route that you want to take or whether it's better to just kind of open to it, you know. And there's all kinds of stuff like this, you know. It's, I was telling the, uh, Ajahn Amaro the other day about my foray into um, the CVS pharmacy. You know, because I, uh, I'm, I'm concerned about skin care, you know, <laughs> and, and I always have been before I started be, be, to become an old lady. And, and so, you know, you stand there at these counters and that skin care counter, maybe it's a sign of the aging population, but it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger through the years, you know. And uh, it, it, if you look, you know, the lower shelves have um, the very uh, basic uh, products. And, and probably and things like lanolin and mineral oil and things like that, the cheap, the cheap stuff, you know. And, and that's probably all you really need. But as your eyes move up the, the counter, you know, move up the shelves, you start to see things that have a lot more interesting names and titles and, and, and make a lot of promises, you know. And while you go up the, the shelves, the, the, the price is also going up, you know. <laughs> it's getting more and more expensive. And, and, and you can stand there. And, and look at this stuff, and, and you see the, the uh, wrinkle reducer, you know, the anti-aging. This is, this is going to go against the aging process. 
This is age-defying. <laughs> you know? Don't deny it, defy it. <laughs> That's what the ads say, you know? <laughs> and it's just totally, totally cracking me up, you know? <laughs> That's the lure. They're, they're trying to pull you in, you know? And I can stand there and actually feel the wobble, you know? <laughs> <laughs> There's this, this little bit of me that's going, well, that just means it's got better products, better ingredients in it, and it's going to work more effectively, and I should get that, even though it's $28 and this one down here is four, you know? That, that kind of thing. You can't, have you seen this? You know, you sort of watch this. I mean, a friend just gave me some hand lotion that I was watching while I was looking at it while I was putting some thoughts together for tonight, and... Um, it really got my attention. It said, uh, wrinkle reducer, hand lotion. Rejuvenating, rejuvenating. This will make you young again. <laughs> oh, boy, what we're up against, you know. But this, this is the process. These are the things that we want to notice. We want to see how the mind is relating to this stuff, where the hooks are, where's the, where are the ways and the, the moments that we get caught and start to believe that there's, the body is under the control of self, and that there's something that I can do to interrupt, reverse, or uh, turn this process around in some way or another. You know? I mean, who wants to admit it, on one hand? You know? and, and these things, these kinds of products and experiences can, can help us to, to put it aside. Put it aside. Ajahn Amaro was kidding me about my brown hair. And, <laughs> and I have to admit, I, I was a little shocked myself that I did it, but, <laughs> but I did. And it was kind of, uh, I, I satisfied myself that it was an aesthetic thing, you know. But I also knew that there's something in here too, you know. So you just keep watching it to see how long it lasts, see if it's getting you anything, see if it's getting you anywhere. So we want to we want to just stay with it, mm. but all of this is teaching us that the, the body is not self. The body is not self, and uh, that's the practice: just contemplate, reflect, notice, see these things for ourselves. So then uh, we come to feeling. I mean. There's a, uh, a host of ways that one can uh, work with feeling and have this be a, a sort of a way that we ease into the realization that intention is not self. So, you know, over the months and years of practice, you, you begin to get a sense that feeling is not self. And uh, one of the main ways that I've seen this is that you, you watch and you begin to get a sense of how we spend our whole lives in this endless, seemingly endless quest to um, make pleasure the dominant uh, experience of our lives and do everything that we can to avoid pain. But it doesn't take much of, of watching, maybe a few years, you know. It, it doesn't, getting it that feeling is not subject to our control <laughs> is, uh, is something that uh, one can actually see very quickly and, and very easily if you just know to look and know how to look. So you begin to see that, uh, feel the, the pain of that quest. You know, feel how uh, futile and, and uh, uh, painful that whole process is. 
You know, it, it's a, we're caught in it night and day, seemingly. Every little wiggle, every little fidget on the cushion trying to get comfortable. Uh, and, and after a while, you know, you just watch that enough. And, uh, you know, in some ways, I, I mean, I, I've seen for myself that, that the practice sort of does itself, even if you're not fully attending. You know, there's, there's a way that the, the mind is beginning to get it, that um, all of this fidgeting and fussing is not bringing about uh, a, a, an experience of some kind of ultimate peace, some ultimate pleasure. We, we don't get to a place where we're comfortable once and for all. You know, it, it just doesn't happen. And so it takes a bit of looking, but you know, this is what the, what's going on while we're practicing here this week and while we practice in, in our lives. You, know, you begin to see that, um, that that quest is extremely exhausting. And in a way, it, it, you let go because it doesn't matter anyway. You know, it's like, it's okay if the pain uh, is there. It's okay if the pleasure doesn't last. We begin to see that our happiness doesn't depend on the uh, acquisition of one and the avoidance of the other. You can actually be in a very peaceful place in the presence of great difficulty. You know, as equanimity begins to mature in this process, then you know we see that for ourselves, and it's a, it's wonderful. It's very liberating. It's like, oh God, you know, give it up. <laughs> Just let it be. Let things be the way that they are. That's what the mind begins to do. So feelings, feelings are not self. Sometimes you feel good. Sometimes you feel bad, and these are are arising out of conditions. Uh, out of karmic patterns and habits. That's just the way it is. And it's for us to see and let it go. Just be along in a way to and notice the constant parade of pleasant and unpleasant feeling. You know, I was watching this one time in, in my own practice and I just had this real visceral sense of being like a pulsing or, uh, organism. You know, it's like with, with pleasure, you go, ah, with pain, you go, ah, with pleasure, you go, ah, with pain, you go, ah. And, and it's just moving like that. One minute's expansive, one minute's contracted. And you can't do anything about it. <laughs> it goes with the territory of being born. It's just the way that the, the whole system operates. So you can notice the same about perception, and there's a whole lot to say about perception, um, more than one could cover in this. Um, but um, it, it is, this a uh, lot of different per, uh, senses of what, is co- what uh, perception includes, but it works very closely with sankara. So sometimes it's a little hard to separate these two, the perceptions and the kama formations, because they're very linked and firing very quickly. But perception covers um, things like the. the the uh, mind's capacity to recognize and um, uh, uh, sort of uh, associate, relate to things, relate to what's happening. It's the names that we give to things. It's the ideas that we have about things. Um, it, and it's uh, the plans and the uh, memories. All of this are included under this heading. So as, as you sit, as you watch, um, 
as we do as meditators. You know, you see the constant parade of this, and just zeroing in on those two, the, the memories and the, and the plans. This can be a very rich area of practice, where you begin to see how memories come up, they bubble up into the uh, uh, conscious mind, and you know, you can, you, you can barely help but breathe them back into life, you know. It, 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 the memory comes up and we're, we're sort of, it's very, very real. It can be very real and you, you start to relive it uh, very quickly. And it can feel very much like it's happening right now. Or, you know, an idea comes up about tomorrow, where we're going to go, what we're going to do next. And uh, this is a very strong attachment. You know, the mind will attach to that idea and then you start to plan, you start to create, you start to do what you need to do to make that uh, idea come to fruition. And this is all in the realm of what we call attachment to perception. But you, you watch this enough and um, it gets very, it's a source of great torment, I think, in practice because um, one begins to see how very much we are living in the past and living in our plans about tomorrow. And as you can unfold this, as, as it, it, this realization penetrates the mind, it, it starts to um, start to get this kind of angst, this great hope or wish for the present. You know, it's like oh, in the midst of all of this attachment to perception um, about the past and the future. You know, where's now? <laughs> you know, the whole time we don't even know that we're here and we're just thinking. You know, that, that as a process, as an activity of the mind, just totally escapes us. So, uh, but as you begin to see that, then um, you begin to develop a very different relationship for this kind of perception. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the memories can come up and they can go, and you can just see it as just that much. The ideas can come up and they can go. And you can just see it as, as just that much, because one is beginning to see for oneself that uh, perception is not self. Just let it rise, let it pass away. It's not who we are. It's not my past. It's not my future. <laughs> you know, there's only now. There only ever has been. There only ever will be. And it's a constant uh, progression of uh, of a, a chain of nows. And so, you know, it, I mean, it can all seem very real, and we can get very lost in it. But, you know, you, you begin to uncover this, don't you? It's like it's, it doesn't have the reality that we give to it. It's just that we're thinking in the present moment and, and giving it a certain kind of reality. I just want to um, jump to, to consciousness. Um, and I'll come back to the formations. Uh, consciousness gets a little tricky to see, uh, and to see it in this detached way, but it's not impossible. And one of the things that you've probably witnessed this week is, uh, whether you realize it or not, is the constant parade of consciousness. So if you're, you're sitting here and you're noticing that uh, now you're hearing something, now you smell something, now you feel something, you sense, sense something, now you're thinking, now there's a feeling, you know, and the, 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 what you're witnessing uh, one moment to the next is this, the constant stream of ever-changing uh, consciousness. 
it's, um, uh, the Buddha says that consciousness uh, uh, arises in six different forms. Uh, that which is associated with seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking and feeling, the heart-mind. And so we, we get to see that. Now, as a meditator, and this is where we can get tripped up, especially in the early years, um, if we think that our task is to somehow control that or manage that, then you can go nuts. <laughs> you can really go nuts in practice because uh, consciousness is not under our control. It's a, it's a constant movement from one uh, in, in moment to another. Now you're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling. And, and little by little, one comes to see that uh, what we're doing actually is, is knowing that. We're aware of that whole process. And, and uh, at some point, the mind kind of turns around and becomes, begins to notice that. That if I can see that, and uh, it's this constant stream, then, and it's constantly changing, then I, I'm, I'm not that. Consciousness uh, is a, a rising and passing of its own accord. It's a, it's a factor or a consequence of having been born. And it begins from the moment that we're born and it goes on till the moment that we die in this uh, steady stream. So the, the effort is to uh, become aware of it from this uh, more detached perspective and, and let it do what it does. That the, it, the fact that it's moving and changing all of the time isn't, uh, doesn't mean that we are, have to be in a restless state as we, as we notice that, because you're actually resting in a place of knowing that is aware of it. And that place can be very, very still. So the constant parade of consciousness, it doesn't need to be a cause for agitation in the mind. And another way that we see it, we can actually see it even more directly than that. Um, and usually it takes an intensive practice to be able to um, get, just get calm enough to be able to uh, see it in this way. Uh, and, and this is like um, one of the ways that it can be very helpful to um, support actually um, uh, you, you sort of move consciousness um, uh, to, to center stage and uh, it becomes something that is seen uh, against the backdrop of other things, but it's isolated out against that backdrop. Uh, and so uh, some of the practices like mental noting can be very helpful uh, when one picks that up in a, a long retreat setting uh, to be able to um, connect with consciousness. So you have, you have that, like your mental noting is going, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling. You know how you keep noting what you're actually experiencing. And um, just that process can build a certain momentum where uh, literally, in a flash, um, that what becomes very dominant on the screen is, is that experience of consciousness, which is a, is a very far out moment because um, the totality of our experience in a moment like that is plain and simply, if it's seeing consciousness, it's seeing, seeing. And, and in that moment where the totality of your experience is seeing, then the, the, the eye that is seeing and the object that it is seeing um, kind of drop away. So that the, the, the whole experience is just this, uh, verb, really. <laughs> you know, people, people say, well, 
they, when they touch this or when this happens, um, they think they're having a no-self experience, you know, because basically um, this sense of me as the one who is doing the seeing is gone because the dominant feature of that moment is just the consciousness seeing. And so if we're lucky or if we can sustain that, then you can actually watch that change at a very, very close, very close level and, and actually be where you're in that. that. That's all that your experience is seeing, hearing, smelling, taking. And, uh, uh, you know, it's very powerful. But a lot of meditators uh, sort of misinterpret it and, and uh, think that they, they've locked into something. But really, all that's happening is that the mind is looking at itself, looking at its capacity to be conscious and uh, taking it to heart from one moment to the next. Now, the Buddha says that what we do with those moments is we distort them. And you can, you can actually watch that happen as well, where um, that sense, what comes in in a moment like that is a very strong sense of me as the one who is seeing. So the, the seeing happens, and in a flash, you have this very strong sense, I see. And right in that movement right there, what we've done is, made, uh, is become a noun. <laughs> you know, I and I and am the one who is seeing, and uh, then objects start to appear. And so, uh, you know, if you can notice this, and see the distortion that's going on. This is one of the best ways, one of the most powerful ways to really get the teaching of non-self. Because you can see the, the sense of self-forming in that distortion. And, and, and yet that's where we tend to live. We tend to live in that distortion and really believe that that's the way that it's happening. That I am in here looking at, at it out there. And it's much more subtle than that, you know, but it, it's for us to, to see uh, and to realize this for ourselves. So I have a little bit more. I hope you don't mind. I want to uh, carry this through to the end. I guess I kind of got into it. <laughs> so now you, you come to the comma formations. And... Um, one part of this is actually pretty easy to see, I think. Anyway, it's like uh, this. It includes the habits and patterns of mind, and it also includes intention. So as, as we practice, you, you begin to become very familiar with your habits and patterns of mind, don't you? <laughs> you know, you, you just see the things that, that make up you. You know, this is the way that you are. This is the way that you behave. And... Um, we all have dominant features in those patterns. In the Vasudhi Magga, uh, they, they talk about you know, being dominantly greedy or dominantly hateful or dominantly deluded. You know. and I don't particularly love that particular delineation, but um, uh, you, do, you can see it. You do begin to realize that uh, uh, as far as um, these states of greed, hatred, and delusion, non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, that we each have our own kind of little package, you know, things that are highly conditioned that come up in us. And what we, what we do as practitioners is, is become familiar with them. 
And over the years of practice, one of the things that is, is really delightful to experience and to, to watch is um, the capacity to get to observe all of that with an increasing level of non-attachment. You know, it, it's like you just get so fed up getting pissed off that you're pissed off, you know, or, or seeing your uh, greedy mind and then getting out the whip, you know, reacting to the ways that uh, we are, the, the patterns, the, the karmic patterns that we see in ourselves. You, you just get tired of reacting to them, having something to say about them. You get tired of um, uh, getting lost in them. And you get tired of not seeing it, you know, so that the intensity of practice can really start to increase where you just want to be able to see what arises here in this heart and uh, what the effects of that are. And, and so if you can feel what I'm saying, it's like over the years of practice, and, and, and I know you know what I mean, it, it just gets, it starts to get a lot more impersonal. You know, you just go, oh, you know, and I saw this myself one, one day very, very profoundly when I, I had the thought as I was watching one of these patterns that heretofore I used to, I didn't like, you know. And, and, I, and I saw it suddenly in a way that just said, oh, there it is. There's that thing I do. And, and that, it was so powerful because something was released. Something was not uh, making it me. It was just something that arises in me. And, and uh, I could see it. And that uh, level of uh, non-attachment puts you in a very different position to it. Now you can begin to examine the consequences of these states, but not until you can see them in that way. This is all what's going on with the third foundation of mindfulness. You, you know, I think the Buddha is kind of setting us up. Just see it as lust. Just see it as hatred. Just see it as an absence of lust. Just see it as an absence of hatred. You know, I mean, he's such a great manipulator. You know, he's just kind of maneuvering us into a, a way of looking at our own internal experience and uh, letting it be what it is, looking at it very objectively. And that completely sets us up for the kinds of examinations that come in in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, where he says, "Okay, now if you can if you can look at it that way, you can begin to see how you got into it." how you get out, what it takes to uh, stay out of it, and what it takes to, to keep it from coming up again. You can actually begin to uh, analyze the whole process, but you, we can't do it until we can um, begin to relate to something as seemingly as intimate and personal as our own karmic patterns and habits of mind. But you can, you know, can't you? You, know, you, can, you, can, you can get outside of it enough to, to um, see how it's all operating. And the, the real sense of that is that it's not self. <laughs> Even something like this. These patterns and habits are arising out of conditions. And if you can just lose this sense of grabbing hold of it as who I am, then the whole process of buying into it and digging the groove deeper um, will diminish. And we begin to really get uh, a, a very powerful new way of relating to even things like this. 
So now I, w I walked through this just to get um, to get a sense of um, how you know to see maybe some level or another of this. It, it's easy for you to see. It's easy. You can see maybe feeling and can't see the comma formations. Maybe you can see the body and can't see the way that you're attached to perceptions. But some way in there, there's a, there's an inroad <laughs> to be able to see what he's trying to get at in, in practice. And uh, just uh, pointing it out because it, it can help us to, to reason through that if all of these other activities of the body and mind are operating in a way that is not self, and if I can see that, if I can see that in a, a, an unattached enough way, then it, it, it becomes less of a leap to get it that even this mechanism of intention, the thing that's maneuvering the rudder, the thing that's directing it all, and uh, that even that, <laughs> even that might be not self too. <laughs> even that might be something that's arising out of conditions. And um, uh, if so, then it calls for us to, to begin to relate to it in a, in a very different way. And this is what Buddha says, you know, he says that intention is not self. This force behind all actions through body, speech, and mind is a mental event that is operating just like every other mental event. It's arising out of conditions. And it's not occurring on the prompting of any kind of self. Uh, and it's, it's a very impersonal act. So this is very, very powerful. Um, you can see this with others and see with, with the other um, aggregates. And so the effort here is to see it with this experience of intention. It's arising out of conditions. And when we can do this, it frees up a tremendous amount of energy, this stuff that is constantly spinning our wheels over what we see ourselves do. And the, the self-loathing, the self-hatred that can come out of that because... Um, I did it, and I'm bad, and I need to be better, and this is awful, and all this, you know, you know the, you know the talk, you know the language. Well, what if uh, all of that is totally 100% useless? <laughs> what if it doesn't have anything to do with anything except, unfortunately, to lock us into the behaviors that we're trying to overcome? You know, because if we hate them, um, we're guaranteeing their return. You know, it's a, it's a form of clinging. So, so we're trying to get to a place that can see what we do and, and hold it uh, back enough in, a, in an unattached and, uh, a way to, to be able to understand how it's operating and see for ourselves. And so, you know, this is the way the whole experience of, of intention uh, occurs. And uh, if, you, if we understand it, then we begin to recognize that this whole process of cleaning up our act, this whole process of awakening that involves moving from the unskillful into the direction uh, of the skillful, um, if it's not under the control of self, <laughs> then uh, one begins to see that uh, the way that intention gets uh, purified, if you will, the way that we move in the direction of the, the most skillful is, um, guess what? It's relax. <laughs> Pay attention. 
you know, don't have anything to say about what's happening. Don't have a view or opinion about it. Don't make it wrong or right. Just be with things as they are and, and, and uh, attempt to hold them with as much uh, kindness and open-heartedness as you can muster. <laughs> Uh, and just see, you know, the Buddha's formula for waking up is pay attention before, during, and after. See what it's like as it's about to happen. See what it's like as it's happening. See what it's like after it's happened. <laughs> see what the consequences of, of uh, holding on or attaching in one way or another are. And um, in that process, you know, this is what we mean when we say that the, the, the whole thing is predicated on direct knowledge, direct experience, so that if it's unskillful, you'll see it, you'll feel it, the mind will get it, that this is not a pleasant abiding. And if it's uh, skillful, you'll see it, you'll feel it, the mind will get it, that this is a pleasant abiding, and it will start to it, it, uh, lean that way. It's like you're engaging the mechanism of feeling in the interest of our own liberation. You know, feel the pain of harm. Feel the pleasure of harmlessness. And, uh, and that's how the, the system corrects itself. So I love that. I don't know about you, but it's like, if I, you know, I started to, when I started to see this, it's like, man, if, if, if my liberation depends on me, cleaning up my act, you know, <laughs> I'm in deep doo-doo, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but if it depends on, if it's totally dependent on my capacity to relax and pay attention to what arises and what the experience of that is, then uh, it suddenly becomes very doable, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I can do that, you know, you, you find out what it means to relax. Find out what it means to pay attention and let the, these uh, experiences of mindfulness and concentration do their magic. That's what they're designed to do. And so just, just finally, um, you know, it, it occurs to one over the, the months and years of practice that, um, and this is a, a very reassuring thought, that this whole organism, this human organism, it, uh, is, is really hardwired for freedom. You know, it, 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 everything, everything is here. Everything, the, the way that it works, the way that it operates, uh, it, it is, is almost like it's geared towards waking up. All you have to do is know how it, that happens and how to use the, the hardware and the software and, and, uh, and let, it, let it do its job. You know, they, they say that the, the human birth is the most fortunate birth. And, and I think it's just for this very reason. Uh, we have the capacity we have the capacity, this mind has the capacity to look back on itself, has the capacity to look at what's going on with the body and to learn from the direct knowledge of what's happening there, essentially, where we want to be. And it doesn't take much. We're, we're not stupid. <laughs> it's very, it becomes very apparent through the process of looking. So I hope some of this is useful. I'm sorry I've kept it a little bit longer tonight, uh, but uh, um, I didn't know it was going to take this long to say what I wanted to say. So please, please forgive me. I hope you'll still have a good night, night's sleep. And um, 
I hope it's useful. So we we'll turn to uh, page 46, five subjects for frequent recollection. <laughs> it starts off, I am of the nature to age. <laughs> you better talk to marketing about that. <laughs> they haven't gotten hip to rejuvenating. I am of the nature to deny. <laughs> Annamayang abhinnapachave kanapatang banamasay Jaranganatito I am of the nature to age I have not gone beyond aging Bayadidamomi bayadinganatito I am of the nature to sicken, I have not gone beyond sickness. Maranadamo mi maranang anatito, I am of the nature to die, I have not gone beyond dying. Sapehi me piehi mana behi all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Kama sakomi kama dayado kama yoni kama bandu kama patisarano yang kama karisami kalayanangwa papakangwa tatsadaya do bawisami. I am the owner of my kama. Heir to my kama, born of my kama, related to my kama, abide supported by my kama. Whatever kama I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. Ewang amhehiya binhang pa chawekitabang. Thus, we should frequently recollect. The Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the Blessed One. 
the teaching so completely explained by him, I bow to the Tamma. The Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.